Hi guys, welcome to Common Ground. This is Danny, your host, hosting with Lexi. Hi guys, good to be back. So generally we talk about controversials on this podcast, uh, controversial issues, but today we actually have a guest with us. Go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Allie Isom. I'm a Republican running for the U.S. Senate against Mike Lee. Yeah, we're so happy to have you here. Really excited. We want to talk a little bit about your campaign. Um, Lexi, why don't you go ahead and start off? Allie, thanks again for being here. We're so excited to have you. It's my honor. So we have done research on you, and you were saying that you agree 97% of the time with Mike Lee, yet you're running against him. And one of the biggest things was term limits. Um, where Mike Lee kind of went into office advocating for term limits, and now he's running for his third term. So my question for you is, if you are elected, how will you ensure trust within Utahns that you will only stay for those two terms? It's a, it's a great question, and I really appreciate that you've asked it. Let me go back to the first part of your question about 97%. What I said to that particular journalist was, Mike and I agree 97% of the time on issues. And Some people think that means we'll be identical in the way we would act and vote. What some people don't realize is that Mitt Romney and Mike Lee do not differ that much. Their voting records are maybe 2% different. And what's interesting is Mitt voted with Donald Trump more often than Mike did. If you look at Nate Silver's 538 analysis, if you follow him, um, that was the analysis done of their voting record. It's not his voting record, it's the weird outlier votes. It's like two days ago when he voted against authorizing the Japanese internment camp memorial in Colorado. He is the one nay vote in that instance, the one nay vote on 9-11 first responders reauthorization, where 60% of them have cancer. And then he's the one nay vote against the Violence Against Women Act. And for me, those votes are strange outliers, and while when it came to like the 9-11 first responders bill, Mike's analysis was the national debt is out of control. Well, I couldn't agree more with the national debt issue and we should have that conversation separately because in that instance, first responders needed to know we had their backs and it was the wrong message at the wrong time. And that's how Mike and I are very different. When it comes to term limits, Mike had talked about term limits when he went into office. He did talk about it often and implied to many people that he intended to serve two terms. He's been one of the nation's most vocal advocates for two terms and then being done. Interestingly enough, in the last iteration of the bill for a national referendum sponsored by Senator Ted Cruz, Mike was not a co-sponsor on that one where he had been before when they'd made an earlier attempt. And I think as he's neared re-election, his position has shifted. I'm on the record, bold, in the light of day, plain and clear, because I do think it's the right thing to do. I think there's life after politics, and our fra- the framers of the Constitution envisioned a citizen legislative body where you get in, you do your part, and you go home. And I believe if you stay in Washington, D.C. too long, the pH can start to change you. People start to get an affinity for the spotlight and appetite for cameras and microphones, and I don't think that's healthy for the process. So I'm on record, and moreover, my family and I have had a very long conversation about the, the scope of this commitment, and I want to come home. I have five grandbabies, and they're gonna grow up, and I'm not gonna miss every minute of their lives. I, I still very much plan to be involved in my family's lives. So for me, that commitment is deeply, deeply personal. That's fantastic. So in your decision to do two term limits, 
you said that this was a way to ensure that you were actually representing the people that elected you. Yes. Like you said, being in the Senate or in your term for too long and running past two term limits makes you more prone to favoring your D.C. pool of people rather than your actual constituents. So over the past duration of your campaign, you've been traveling to 250 cities, visiting all types of Utah people, figuring out what are their needs that they need, that I need to get done in Congress, and I want to know what is like the commonality that you found, you found between each of these cities, and how are you addressing those issues? So I, when I began the campaign, I pledged to walk a mile in every Utah community, and it is that concept of walking a mile in someone's shoes, trying to understand what their perspective is like. And I have made it to 74 of Utah's 251 cities. And it's been the best part of the campaign. It's a delight. I walk with local officials, community leaders, business owners, Main Street business owners, ranchers, farmers, parents, teachers. And it's been, it's been wonderful. It's, it really has provided insight that I needed to form my policy positions and, and priorities. So what I hear from Utahns statewide water is always at the top of the list with the exception of Bluffdale they didn't they weren't as concerned but they were really the only exception every other community I've been in water is number one and the concern is we we want to avoid our rural communities and our urban communities being at odds we need to start planning now and sometimes we don't even have basic data so I think until you measure it you can't really determine where it's going who's using it and I think people should pay for what they're using and we should ensure that we're not harming our agricultural industries long term. But there's a drought, right? That's the reality. So I don't think St. George should be watering their lawns with culinary water. Maybe we can find some other solutions together. Um, but I'm also hearing about affordable housing, affordable childcare, uh, the morale of law enforcement and teachers and medical personnel over and over and over again. Somehow, in the last few years, we've done such a disservice to these people who keep our communities moving forward. I also hear about quality of life and growth issues. We have so many people moving into this state because of our quality of life. It's an amazing place. There are beautiful places all over this state. And every rural community I've been in faces an encroachment of additional demands on their, their systems and their services probably with the exception of Paraguna. <laughs> I, they weren't as worried about growth and affordable housing. Uh, but mostly, uh, most communities are starting to have those really healthy conversations. And my role is not to get in their way. I believe local control is best. Those closest to the people govern best. And I feel like those local communities should have self complete self-determination in their future. So I would want to support them. So in those instances, it's how can I get out of the way and how can I ensure you have tools and resources, so you have optimal numbers of solutions at your, at your disposal? Completely. I completely understand that. That's amazing. I love how you visited all those cities and got to talk with so many constituents and get what their personal um, experience is. Also, I do have a question. In your campaign, you really voiced on how humans connect at our broken edges, right? Yes. You went on to say how you kind of came from an impoverished background. Mm -hmm. um, you worked throughout your entire school duration. You were on the debate team in order to get scholarships. You have done your research. Look yes. at you. <laughs> yes. So with all that, um, with all that experience and mostly focusing on like the broken edges, connecting to people 
who have been through pain. We've seen so much pain throughout the past two years, especially with the pandemic, right? Yes. How are you going to use your position in our legislative body to promote uh, bills that will really affect Utah in helping those things with affordable housing, with health care? Because you're representing us not only at the state level, but also federally, yes? yes. You're a part of that body of law um, or of that legislation. So how would you use your position to advocate for all Utahns? First of all, I need to know what's in the hearts and minds of everyday Utahns. And the concept of broken edges is really one of, I haven't met anyone who hasn't been through hard stuff. We've all been through hard stuff. And sometimes in the public arena, you get the shellacked version of people. you know. And that varnish isn't helping any of us tackle the really tough issues. And uh, when I was in the governor's office and my oldest child passed on and I came back from bereavement leave with a new lens because it transforms you, um, I have a, an approach to public policy to ensure I stay in touch with the real people of Utah. And it's, it's, a f it's five points, five lenses I use to look at public policy. The first one being people, put a face on it, know what the issue is and get the data that indicate what's the story and understand their stories. If I didn't understand stories, I wouldn't know Millie in Woodruff or that's uh, a meat goat farmer that uh, can talk to me about agricultural prices. And she's homeschooling three kids and fiercely wants to defend her quality of life. As a master's in animal husbandry, she's brilliant. Carol in St. George, who's come up with a homelessness solution that is innovative and unique and promotes community. And I want to support models like that. Or I met Val in Laverkin. She's a clerk at the local grocery store and two sons who've died by suicide. And that woman has been through hell. And I admire the fact that she has, she's still upright and a smile on her face and moving forward. And she wants to talk about the tough issues. So for me, how do I ensure I, I'm, I stay in the local communities? I get out and I, I talk to them. And in my policy initiative, there's a reason clarity is the first point. Because I believe until we have clarity in our communication and we're talking honestly with one another, we can't solve any of the toughest problems. So my intention is to be in touch with everyday Utahns and understand what's in their hearts and minds and create mechanisms where I'm regularly communicating with them face-to-face, -face, but also technologically we have a lot of solutions where we can have meaningful conversations. So how, do, how I do that and set up my office is really one that I'm exploring right now, trying to understand what technology platforms are Utahns using and how do I get to you most effectively? And how do I get information back from you, straight talk back from you? Um, that's, that's, I think, how I solve tough problems is understanding who, who it impacts and where the levers are. And philosophically, I believe government shouldn't solve all your problems. In fact, government should be, get out of the way often and let humans solve their own problems or give them the tools and resources to solve their own problems. So how are we doing that? And are we sending it back to the state so it's customized? Sometimes the federal government does this one-size-fits-all solution that doesn't work for every state, let alone every community. So how do we ensure there's flexibility and adaptation for local communities? Those are the things that the principles that will guide me as I try to make decisions and priorities. Right. And I know on your campaign, one of your biggest points with your story and your background was the concept of self-reliance being able to rely on yourself to get yourself out of tough times, economically, medically, and whatnot. Um, 
even that being said, I know that the majority of, of Americans are living paycheck to paycheck. Yes. Right. So it's a very difficult time period to even be self-reliance. We've had issues with the economy, with the pandemic closing lots of businesses. Mm-hmm. We have issues with hospitals being overrun with patients and, you know, sickness and trying to deal with where is the gray area between business closures and not having business closures and keeping people safe. And so for me, especially with your background and all the trials and tribulations that you went through, how do you think government can be of assistance, right? We're promoting this idea of self-reliance, but when it's just so tough now in our current stage of life with the trials that we've been through with the pandemic, how do we give people that extra assistance without having them totally rely on the government for you? It's That's a magic question of government, right? Where's the balance? Where's the balance of of delivering services and the balance of taxation, the balance of of helping people find their way forward and have as many opportunities as possible. And, you know, I'm concerned when I look at our economy, I get very frustrated with that last, um, that last stimulus package because it felt to me like the government put too much cash into the system and it drove up inflation. We, we turned the dial too far. So we have to have the discipline to adjust the dials just enough. And I'm one of those who believes, let's be surgical about it. Let's do minimal intrusion in the local economies so that we can preserve stability. When there's, a, when there's this kind of instability in the wild swings, folks like you who are in college and are looking at your future have fewer choices when it comes to housing options, right? Or job options and securities. And when we're talking about the, the, the modern job market, and the gig economy, there are so many different options available to you than there were to me 20 years ago. But some of those came about because government stayed out of the way. So how do, how do we ensure government is in the right places at the right time? We still have an obligation to our fellow humans. And I'm mindful of programs like the General Assistance Program that helps the least of these in our communities. And frankly, I think sometimes we're not doing enough and we're not measuring the right things. And we have a lot of people who prey on those situations for their own gain. And we need to take a reality check and step back and say, what are we doing that's actually making a difference and helping? And personally, because of my situation growing up, you know, I'm not pedigreed. I didn't have a silver spoon. I had to find my way forward out of really hard times. Um, and I, I want to give everybody else the same opportunities. But intergenerational poverty is close to my heart, especially for childhood intergenerational poverty, because we know if we can help those children um, and, and limit risk factors before age eight, they have a much better opportunity at thriving in their lives. If we don't intervene sufficiently, their, their odds of incarceration, mental health crises, physical crises goes up dramatically. And so we can't, it's one of those notions of where do you start in intergenerational poverty? It's such a huge issue. And I strongly believe we start with the kids and we give them the, the parents and kids the support they need to break that cycle. Thanks, Allie. You've really advocated for Republican unity. Yes, absolutely. Um, It's time. Right. Yes. As a Republican, I would love to see um, our party take over in the midterms, as well as the general election. Um, As of right now, Donald Trump has put put it out there that he could potentially run again in 2024. And um, just from previous statements you've made, you haven't been the biggest supporter of the former president. 
So my question for you is, one, do you think that Donald Trump is the biggest contributing factor in the divisiveness of the Republican Party? And my second question is, if elected, how would you respond to a potential uh, another Trump presidency in the future? I am troubled about the state of the party. I think the Republican Party is having an identity crisis right now. And we have to get back to our fundamental principles. We've been too distracted by personalities and culture wars, and we've forgotten things like limited government and fiscal accountability and the rule of law. They matter. And they provide a framework for durable solutions that ensure our economy is more stable over time. And humans have as much opportunity to thrive over time. So I, I'm, I'm troubled that we've, we've forgotten who we are. And I don't think it necessarily started with the former president. I look back, you know, 20 years ago, and I think there were certain personalities like Newt Gingrich that set the table for this hostility and anger and made it okay. And people started to get more strident and they started to vilify one another. We started to use purity tests. And I think all of these things are harmful to public dialogue. They're incredibly distracting from the things we should be focused on. And they divide us. And while we're fighting amongst ourselves as Republicans, Democrats are proposing to expand federal government astronomically. So let's get our act together, you know? And how do we do that? I, as I walk across the state, there's not a community I've been in where people feel seen, heard, and valued. They all feel like we've, we're unseen, unheard, and unvalued. And in fact, I've spent a lot of time listening to people across the spectrum, trying to understand why they feel the way they do. And January 6th is a divisive day for our nation in lots of ways. But what I recognize, I don't think those goons who broke into the Capitol were capable of a coup. So let me just be on the record saying that. But a lot of those people there that day, maybe 95% of them did not resort to violence. So why were they there? What was it about their message that was compelling them to be there to go to such lengths? They felt unseen and unheard as if they were being canceled out, you know, their words canceled out. And that's consistent with what I hear from people on the left feeling unseen and unheard. And when I know from my communications background, when people feel unseen and unheard, emotional intensity amplifies, it goes up and we can't have productive conversations. We're screaming at each other. So my objective is bring the emotion back down, see people, hear them out, understand them. I've spent time with people who I disagree with vehemently, but when you listen to them at the end of the day, you can still be friends. You can still move forward and you can find middle ground. And that's my objective. Bring the emotion down, help people feel seen and heard, get them back to the table, maybe with a great cinnamon roll or a brownie, I joke, you know, like uh, maybe we just need to break bread once in a while. And then we can have some conversations about the things that are impacting us, affordable housing and affordable health care that's not really affordable, right? Things that we need to talk about that affect everyday lives. Right. So if you had your ideal candidate for 2024, who, who is your ideal next president? My ideal next president adheres to the principles that the party was founded on, the mm -hmm. principles I talked about earlier of limited government, fiscal responsibility. Our national debt is $30 trillion dollars. And those who've been in in the last 10 years have watched it grow. I kind of joke like we've been spending like drunken Republicans. We got to stop already. It's, it's out of control. Um, and I want somebody who's going to focus on the rule of law, who understands that being the president of the United States is a sacred duty. You're the leader of the free world. You're 
voice matters, your tone matters, your decisions impact not just a few people, it impacts our whole country. We are looking to our president to be a leader. That's what I'm looking for in the next nominee. And I think it's really premature to start speculating on candidates. I think the Republicans have a lot of group therapy that we need to have to work through some things and get on the same page. So I'm, I'm hoping that we can find the right candidate and move forward in a constructive way. Right. Unity is the biggest thing. And if we get that, then I think I think there will be some wins in the near future. I hope so. And, you know, I it, it comes from this deep place in my in my soul. As I was getting briefed about some foreign policy issues and I asked some hard questions, um, one of the final questions I asked was, who's our biggest threat? I'm thinking I'm going to hear China or Russia or Iran or North Korea. And th their, their response was us. We are our greatest threat. As long as we keep fighting and we can't get on the same page about what solutions look like, we are tearing ourselves apart from the inside. And that's not the America I know or the America I want. Allie, thank you so much. We really appreciate, really appreciate all of your answers. It was an yes. honor. Yes, thank you so much for being on our podcast. Uh, that finishes off for today. Um, we will see you guys next time when we talk about the death penalty. And thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure. Thank you for letting me be here with you too. You're bright and I can't wait to see where you go with your world. <laughs> be exciting. And uh, let me just give a shout out to all the SUU. I'm thrilled to be on campus today. Fantastic. We're all happy to have you here. Thank, thank you. you.